Let's pray. Creator God, how amazing that you have revealed yourself to us. And that you remain gracious to us, calling us by your mercy. Would you by your word, by your spirit this morning, draw us near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The late Howard Hendricks, uh, whom uh, I know a number of you, Years ago, heard teach, longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, stood with a crowd around him after a speaking event, and folks were pressing, introducing themselves, asking questions, making comments, and Howard noticed uh, a woman in the back, children in tow, uh, coming up the crowded aisle to the front, and uh, She was moving so fast that when the uh, guy from the sound booth, think about these days, guys, uh, especially uh, you young ones, uh, he had the reel-to-reel tape of Howard's message in his hand, uh, and she knocked it out of his hand, and it landed on the edge, and Howard's message unrolled up the aisle in front of her. Uh, She plowed her way on through the crowd barged in amongst those that were right around him until she was nose to nose with him and said, Professor Hendricks, Professor Hendricks, can you teach me how to make my children more patient? (laughs) I begin with this not only because Jesus, who is our wisdom, is also our patience, but also uh, because I've been around for a while. Uh, I remember reel-to-reel tapes. I recorded the high school musicals. I uh, performed in with my own reel-to-reel recorder. I may still have those dying recordings somewhere in a closet. But the fact that I've been around for a while... uh, I've seen a lot of things, but one of the things I've seen that the pressure that is always on us as human beings to conform, to fit in, has decade by decade continued to increase. And in the last few decades, uh, the pressure for everybody, Jesus followers and those who aren't even thinking about it yet, uh, the pressure to fit in with the crowd, uh, the real or clever social fiction crowd, to fit in and do what we're doing, do what they're doing, uh, just to get by, don't ask questions, and certainly don't ask them out loud, has grown and grown and grown. Always been there, it's human nature. Groups define themselves by shutting others out. Os Guinness, uh, an incredible student of wisdom, may God give him even more years, speaks with insight about our modern 
Western culture. He says, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. We have too much, too many things to live with, constantly distracted. And yet for all of that, as a culture in the West, too little to live for and with great self-effort trying to tear down what we have. Jesus' own people are uniquely equipped with Him as our wisdom uh, to love our neighbors who are as adrift as we are apart from Jesus. And if you don't think that you're adrift apart from Jesus, uh, you need to learn with me about Jesus being our wisdom. Our neighbors need, as we need, to be affirmed as valuable, as precious, to be told that there are reasonable reasons why it's so that each one of us is precious. In our text from 1 Corinthians, Steve preached on the broader text a few weeks ago. Uh, I did listen to it, Steve. And uh, I'm not preaching this because it needed fixed, uh, but because it was so rich, I wanted to dig in on a tiny part of it and give it a particular focus. The text, and uh, because of Him, because of God in context, you, if you are a believer, are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He's more than just that, if you can put a just in front of wisdom, but He is wisdom from God to us, God incarnate. And the three words that follow after are spelling out key aspects of what that wisdom is. He is wisdom from God. What does that mean? He is to us our righteousness, the text says. And He is to us our sanctification. And He is to us our wisdom. He's become to us wisdom from God in these ways. And because of that, so that, Paul says, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because if the triune God has become to us incarnate wisdom, and we see what we need in justification and sanctification and redemption, that it's all from Him, who are we to boast? As Paul says elsewhere, we have nothing. He puts it in a question form. What do you have that you've not been given? ultimately from God, but by so many others. Paul wrote in verse 24, a few sentences before this, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the power of God is not separate from the wisdom nor the wisdom from the power. In fact, in the unique way that Paul teaches it in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, the cross is the power of God. Who would have thought? The shock that the wisdom of God and the power of God are in the cross. And Paul wants us and wanted in his ministry to know nothing else. And that term, I can't go into this for more than 20 seconds, but uh, 
uh, went back and did again, do it every few years, uh, a concordance study, uh, sometimes in the English, sometimes in the Greek, on the name Christ Jesus when Paul uses it. It's many places. But it almost always focuses on something of the fullness who the anointed messianic Christos Jesus is. It's not talking just about Jesus in his fleshly role, but it's finding ourselves in Christ who is all these things to us. And therefore, he is in all those things, the way and the truth and the one in whom we have new life. Therefore, first, Christ Jesus is to be your wisdom. No matter where you are on the spectrum, uh, we've all been in all three places at times, so let's be honest. You know, whether you are not only don't have any serious interest in Christ, but uh, if you were really honest, you're running away from Him. Uh, there's not a believer in this place that in small ways and sometimes big hasn't been there. In some moments, we're still there. Or in beginning to seek. Or in finding and only beginning to know. Uh, the only thing that makes me different from someone who's not following Jesus is Jesus opened my eyes and I'm stumblingly falling after. So I have more in common with non-believers than with Jesus, except for what Jesus gave me. And we really need to learn that lesson as the church. So what about Christ as your wisdom in terms of righteousness? He is to be your righteousness. What does that mean? He is to be your acceptance, your standing before God. Sometimes we think of just the list of things that one can do to make oneself righteous. Well, we'll never get there that way. What we need is standing before God, being able to stand without being slapped down or worse. And it's the righteousness that is ours in Christ that gives us entrance into the presence of God as an adopted child. So Christ Jesus is your introduction and the only introduction for any human into the presence of God, to have standing, to be able to stand before Him without shame because Christ bore our shame. And so one of the questions, and it's another message, but we need to think about uh, where else do we try to get our standing before people and before God? Because it, the issue of righteousness in the Scripture isn't just about standing before God. It's an issue of removing from us all the false things we use to think ourselves better than our neighbor. And it's the same issue because real righteousness says, I'm not better than my neighbor. I'm not better than my wife when I'm frustrated with her and she's obviously wrong and I'm right. Duh. Or the reverse. Or you make your list. So don't limit the nature of standing before God as just forgiveness and legal acceptance by Christ's substitutionary atonement. You can never make too little of that. But our standing with God, our righteousness in God's presence is also as adopted children. Scripture uses multiple images. Righteousness isn't just justification. It's a lot of things. Justification is the foundation the Reformers were right. You can't get away from it, but it's not the only thing Scripture says. Sanctification. Christ Jesus uh, 
is to be your way to devotion, your way to goodness, uh, to discerning and being devoted to the good life. Uh, we don't use this language much today. Uh, you know, I've talked about C.S. Lewis' term chronological snobbery. Others use the term presentism. Uh, we've got a, a leadership culture that wants us to believe that everything we have today is better than anything that came before. And that we have better insights into every one of our sins than all those weak people who came before us. But the reality is that many previous generations, previous centuries, were much more wise into trying to define what is the good life? What are we here for? What's our purpose? Uh, what is satisfying? Uh, read those things. Uh, need to be careful here. My mind is going off on four other messages. Zip it. I will. But Jesus is to be our goodness, our way to discerning and being devoted to the good life. He's the only one who knows that the good life is centered in being devoted to God and devoted to His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, through the ages, Human beings have been trying to define and redefine the good life over and over and make it in our own image. But He is to be our way to goodness. Sanctification includes morality. It includes the things that God says are right and disallows what God says is wrong. But at the heart of it, it's like the temple furniture which was devoted to the Lord. The living sacrifice is devoted to the Lord in laying down its life. We are to be living sacrifices. You've heard the phrase, uh, the trouble with living sacrifices is they're always trying to crawl off the altar. That's me. That's you. But it's heart devotion, sanctification. Jesus is our hope of actually over time living out the will of God, the fruit of the Spirit in our community. Redemption. Christ Jesus is to be your future. I've said it before, just a quick reminder. Uh, we have been adopted by faith, included in Christ. But Romans 8 says very clearly that it's only when everything is made new in the new heavens and new earth that we get our full adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And as Adam and Eve rebelled, the creation was corrupted, and the corruption isn't made new until men and women in Christ are made new. Notice the order. Man rebels, creation is cursed. Man is renewed, given the fullness of adoption, resurrection bodies, creation will be renewed. God says what He made us to do on earth is really significant. 1 Corinthians 1, we don't have time to read it, uh, tells us that many Greeks and many Jews found numerous aspects of the story of Christ's death foolish. A suffering God? Boy, the Romans wouldn't like that. The Greeks didn't think much of it. It didn't fit the kind of Messiah that most of the Jews most of the time were looking for. The way of the cross, humiliation, though foretold, was not the way that most had been seeking. For many humans, redemption this way is foolishness. Significance is gained not by a cross, but by getting as much as we can and in subjugating as many as we can under our power and wealth gathering. Shrewdness is the goal. 
And for some, it's just greed. And for some, it's because they're so convinced that their new way, their new ideology is what is going to bring the good life to the world. And yes, there'll be casualties along the side, but the good way is worth it. Trust us. Be careful who you trust. Jesus is to be your future. Wisdom is redemption. Knowing that you've ultimately been adopted with ownership that surpasses any other. I had the privilege of a couple of different times getting to be with the late Tom Skinner. Uh, don't have time to go into his life uh, in much detail, but his father was the pastor of one of the biggest Baptist churches in Harlem, New York City. Uh, Tom was an incredibly gifted high school student, had leads in Shakespeare plays, was president of the youth group in his father's church, and he was leader of the Harlem Lords and had seven notches in his knife, meaning he'd cut seven other guys in battle. And in his heart, he was mocking much of Christianity. He loved his father and his father's church, but he made fun of a lot, and he turned on the radio to study one night to his favorite rock station, and he tells the story, told the story that uh, uh, somehow some church that didn't even know how to speak good English rented the half hour that he wanted to listen to his station. And the preacher was just not up to his standards. And he started laughing and joking, but he got interested in studies and just left it on. And somehow in the middle of that hour of that gospel sermon in the background, Tom Skinner, leader of the Harlem Lords, got on his knees and really became a Christian. And one of the most profound evangelists in the black community, in the white community in America of the last century. Makes me cry to think of the power of his message. He would go into places where he knew he was the token black brother because it was the end thing to let a black brother in to speak. And he would just look at the crowd. I can remember him at Kibiscane Presbyterian when Steve Brown and I were there together and we had him speak, uh, just saying to us, he could do it so much better than my rough, quick paraphrase, but he just said, look, I don't ask you to like me. I don't ask you to accept me. I don't ask you to love me. It'd be okay if you do, but I don't need that. I'm a child of the King of Kings. Adopted. Accepted. Have standing where it really counts. And so I only ask of you the privilege of loving you on behalf of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means that Jesus is our wisdom our righteousness, our sanctification, and our future. Because it's not only the good life now, it's the good life forever. And there's no boasting. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And, and that's what Paul is lifting before the eyes of this fledgling church in Corinth. If you've got your Bible, uh, open it to 1 Corinthians 2, because I want you to see before I make some final applications, uh, just that 
there are a lot of commentaries that uh, sometimes I just want to throw them off my shelf because they go down all the roads of spirituality and tongues and other things in 1 Corinthians when they read 1 Corinthians 2 instead of understanding that it comes after 1 Corinthians 1. I mean, that's kind of a surprise, but it's really all about the same thing, that, that Paul doesn't want to deny the cross its power because the cross is what brings us in as adopted children born from above. And so I'm going to fly through this just to make it suggestive for you and hope you'll think about it some more. In the first five verses, uh, Paul talks about not coming with wisdom because he only wanted to know one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And, and he's not talking so much about not, I mean, Paul was a rhetorician, but he wasn't trying to make rhetoric the big thing. He didn't want people to think that, uh, that, that oh, you know, when the great preacher dies, the gospel is going to be at a loss. Paul would go, what? The gospel is going to be at a loss because the great rhetorician preacher dies? I mean, uh, let me warn you of one thing. I'm your interim. Uh, not too many months from now, I'll be gone. Uh, the pastor you get will be a long-term interim, longer-term interim. Because every pastor is an interim. And by the way, you're an interim. But the gospel will be there for us in, in every way. And Paul leaned on the wisdom of God in the way of Christ Jesus, his cross, on God's power to illumine the way. It has the power to convict. Paul is saying when he wants to know only the cross, that he's saying if you win people based on anything else other than the upside-down message of the Christ, of the cross of Christ, uh, they will lead by the way the world leads. They'll want you to impress with what the, be impressed with what the world is impressed with. And what you need to be impressed with is the cross of Christ. And what you need to be most thankful for is the men and women, the brothers and sisters around you that will tell you that message of the cross. And some will tell it better than others, but think of the broken English preacher on the radio and God reached Tom Skinner. I can tell you story after story after story of how God has used the weakest by our standards among us. First Corinthians 2, 6 through 13, he says, we do speak among mature, mature wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Skipping down uh, to verse 9, but as it is written, uh, what no eye has seen or ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I hope none of you grew up like I did hearing that verse at funerals, as if now this dear departed one is going to see what has never been seen. Paul would go, no, 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 that's not what I wrote. What I wrote is what was hidden for generations. The coming of God incarnate, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, the way of salvation has now been revealed. And if you think you're spiritual but don't know that's the heart of everything and that it's already been revealed, then you're mature. And in the beginning of 1 Corinthians uh, 3, when Paul talks about uh, uh, that you're not mature, uh, so I, I can't give you solid food, I can just give you milk, oh, there's bad stuff in the commentaries on that. As if somehow something from the Word of God could be milk. 
what Paul is saying, if you don't understand the cross is at the center of everything, you're still nursing at your mother's breast, and I can't give you even a TV dinner. You just need breast milk. When you're mature, you need the gospel spelled out, taught, explained, a call to live that way lovingly towards insiders and and outsiders. Those are the spiritually mature, those who are born again. In Christ Jesus, we've been given life in the Spirit that we might understand the things given to us in Christ. What things? He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our future. Those are all the things that when you have the mind of Christ, you know who Christ is, and so you know who you are, where you started, quoting Calvin, Stephen. (laughs) Thank you. That we know who we are because we know who God is. And if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, you remember that I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of so-and-so, I'm of R.C. Sproul, I'm of, uh, you know, whoever. Uh, Paul is saying, if you know the cross, uh, I mean, you can like one guy better than another guy, another woman teacher better uh, than another, but if you make too much of it, you've forgotten the cross. If you make anything more out of one of the servants than you make of the servant, and you think servants who don't lay down their lives for you are the ones that you should follow, and none of us do it perfectly. But that's the reality that's here. 2.14 through 3.5, it's the Spirit that illumines with the mind of Christ. Well, who? Those who are spiritual and born anew with the Spirit of Christ. They're the ones who understand all this stuff. The natural person, uh, sukakos, soulish, in the Greek, sukakos, uh, soulish having to do with fallen human nature, they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They don't accept Christ. But when you have the mind of the Christ, you be, mind of Christ in the Spirit, in the Word, uh, then you love one another. You're humble before one another. And you treat your neighbors as, as significant as you are. There's not some special knowledge going on here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3. Paul's saying, understand the significance of the gospel. And you won't get it the first time, so I'm going to give you several chapters. And by the way, you can go all the way through 1 Corinthians and learn from that. Uh, How many of you have ever heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at a wedding? Or had it read at yours? I'm not against that. But sometime, look at what love is and is not in 1 Corinthians 13, and then read the rest of the book, and you're seeing that Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for all the things that they are that love is not. So it's not a very sentimental passage. Uh, It's a rebuke that calls us to be like Jesus is, and not like we tend to be when we live in a fleshly manner. Thirdly, got to wrap this up. How shall we who have found wisdom, acceptance, true goodness, a bright and just future, live among those as desperate for wisdom as we. Ed Clowney, uh, late president of Westminster Seminary, uh, uh, who humbled me as much as any man I've known by asking me to lunch so that I could give him my ideas as a young professor at Reform Seminary for a book he was writing. I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, are you out of your mind? But I said yes to the lunch. And And Ed uses a term that others, Tim Keller and others, have adapted, but talking about how the church should be in our worship services, he talks about doxological evangelism. And that means that one of the ways we evangelize 
is by being humble in the cross, but praising God, and not just for forgiveness, but in the ways that Calvin taught, that if we're going to know ourselves, we've got to know what God is like and how different we are, and that it's all of Him that makes us anything else. Ed wanted us to keep our balance, to make sure that in preaching mercy and grace, we never drifted from doxology and praise of our Creator, who has the might and the right to rule and define what's good in creation. And that ultimately, every one of us has to bow before Him and His definitions. We've got to bow before Him as who He is, Creator and Definer, before we can fully bow before Him as Redeemer. And so what do we do? Running away from God in our sin, uh, we praise creation or things that we make or humankind itself. And therefore, wisdom is in coming to see that we are rebel gatherers, drawn to rebels because we and they naturally run and hide from God. We praise God, the eternal Son, who took on flesh and runs to us and even lets us kill Him and His death is ground for our forgiveness. We lift Him up as so far above us and so different from us. And I love Tim Keller who says, uh, if you don't find God disagreeing with you, the God that you're calling God isn't God. Because He's going to disagree with you. You're not there yet. told somebody at dinner the other night uh, when I was in Boston with crew, uh, I was deeply moved to grow in the Lord, and I prayed, Lord, uh, help me get to know you better. And an hour later, I had... God's wiped the thought from my memory, but at the moment it hit me, that is the grossest thing I've ever thought about and thought about doing in my whole life. And I did what I hope you might do. I said, God, I was just talking to you, and I asked you to help me get to know you. And he said, I did, by showing you what you're really like, what you can be like without my grace. That was a gift. So go on and get to know me better. Uh, I'm going like, this is not an easy road. I'm going to have to keep humbling myself all the way along. Well, what did Paul say? It's all about the cross. Okay, got to wrap it up. I'm going to talk in overtime. The recording will be on the web, Lord willing. So what do we need to be sensitive? Because we know we're rebels, becoming what one day we will be, but sensitive to where we are in some ways and many of our neighbors are. I mentioned the book. Let me just give you the title. I, I recommend it. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, in 2019 wrote Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Greatest Religion, which is a good thing for dealing with, uh, non-believers dealing with, and us dealing with the foibles of the church. Uh, she got smart and she wrote in 2021 a helpful version for most folks, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. It's kind of like the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism. I find in our day, most of us aren't even ready for the Shorter Catechism. We say, that's the Shorter? Well, the 10 questions every teen should ask and answer, I just love the book. Early on, she mentions Harry Potter, the prince or, prince, prisoner of Azkaban, where he keeps seeing an ominous black dog who later turns into the evil murderer in his mind, Sirius Black, who betrayed Harry's deceased parents. But we find out, spoiler alert, plug your ears if uh, you're yet to get into Harry Potter and want to, that Harry is wrong about Sirius, who himself was betrayed and is protecting Harry and the closest thing to family 
that Harry has in all of the Potter novels. But at first, he hates him. And McLaughlin draws the analogy, I love it, to many in our day who see Christ, or at least Christianity, as Harry saw serious, believing it to be against things that they value, against things that they want to protect, and things that they think are good. And her first chapter relates to what I spoke about earlier, the good. It's titled, How Can I Live My Best Life Now? And she presents well that not only is Christ Jesus our best life for the future, but now too. And her approach is pondering, is worth pondering. It helps us with gentleness and respect, give reason for the hope that's in us. You know the C.S. Lewis quote, I believe in Christianity uh, as I believe that the sun is risen not only because I see it, because by it I see everything else. That the wisdom of the scriptures lights up the world the way that the older you get, you know it really works. I'm going to give you a real quick list and, and then we're done. In the first chapter, she talks about these things. Secular studies, they're all footnoted uh, in the book, about 10 questions every teen should ask and answer. That people who go to church, synagogue, at least once a week are happier and healthier. Secular studies, one after another. Children in such settings tend to grow up happier with greater sense of purpose, much lower suicide rate than others along the way. Secular studies. 75-year-old Harvard study shows that not fame, faculty at Harvard over 75 years studying the same issue, that fame, wealth, success don't bring health, the good life, satisfaction, but covenant-like relationships, family and friends keep people happier and healthier. Helping others is good for us, more blessed to give than receive, remember hearing that somewhere, secular study. Gratitude is good for us, forgiveness also. Uh, but to whom do we need to be grateful? Points to the scripture, secular study. Remember the study we did on the lack of gratitude turning to resentment and even to revenge. It's not surprising that the wisdom of God is built into creation and that even those who are running from Jesus, when they really start looking at life, get led back to what the scriptures teach. Steadfastness, faithfulness, grit, secular studies can be more valuable and useful than giftedness and talent. Staying the course, being faithful. What does that sound like? I mean, the gospel is preached by creation. People need a connection to something larger than themselves to flourish. Love, meaningful work, a calling from an outside caller. So we praise Jesus as our wisdom because he gives us a standing before God and enables us to have a good life now that loves even those who would put us down. That's the kind of goodness that helps everybody. And he graciously gives all who will trust him a glorious and good future. So I say to you as we do close, stay steadfast if you're a believer. There are hard times, there are ugly times, there are easy times. But if you stay steadfast, you'll find the riches in deeper and deeper ways of the good life, even though it hurts to become mature. And if you aren't following Jesus, you might find that following Christ, if you study it more, is not what you thought it was. And uh, 
you might find that Christianity and Jesus become to you what that ominous black dog was to Harry Potter. Not the one who wanted to kill him, but the one who was protecting him. The one who would deliver him. The one who would be life and a future. Father God, we praised you in the service, we praised you in the sermon. Would you fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise as we close? We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. Amen. Worship.